Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing Alain Collaz Around the World Alone, and we're continuing Chapter 4. Chapter 4 A Sea of Troubles. Navigating in these waters presents special problems. I am referring not only to those frequent occasions when the waves are so high they resemble moving mountains and the 67.5-foot Manoreva is tossed about like a tri-hulled straw, or when the wind is strong enough to lift a boat right out of the water. Even in calm, which is to say in abnormal weather, it is difficult to handle a boat in these icy waters. I never understood before the term roaring forties. It no doubt refers to the winds, which sound like wild animals roaring in triumph just as they bring down their prey. After rounding the Cape of Good Hope, after the excellent conditions encountered in the South Atlantic, it did not take me long to realise that I was using too much sail for the Indian Ocean's sudden gusts of wind and that this was causing my halyards to break. I also realised that, even after these gusts, the sea remained rough for a long time. A boat cannot heave to indefinitely, even though there are times when she must simply allow herself to be carried along by the waves. In such instances, the solution is to hoist one's sail as quickly as possible, because the best way to get away is to go forward. The art of sailing is largely a matter of foresight, of weighing all the factors involved, almost to the point of counting the clouds in the sky. There is a risk involved in opening up the boat and healing at the angle that she takes on the vertical wall of the waves, and there is also a risk in losing control after a strong gust of wind. A sailor has to be able to sense the dangers and the perils in every situation and make the right decision when, for example, faced with a more or less violent and unexpected squall. He must be able to choose between the risks of reducing his sail and those of going even faster. Most often, even in very strong wind, I prefer to keep sail up, although this may mean hours of tension and the necessity for keeping constant watch to see what is happening. If the sea becomes too rough, then it is time to consider giving in and hauling down sail, but I consider that only as a last resort. In a strong northwest wind, there is always the danger of being carried far south of my route. Sometimes we sail along the edge of the Antarctic ice, and since I want to sleep peacefully at night, I have absolutely no desire to venture into iceberg territory. Despite all these complications, I have gradually fallen into a routine. When the wind picks up, I take in sail. When it dies down a bit, we start up again. Squalls or sudden gusts mean that I must prepare for battle. The only trouble is that all these manoeuvres and the repairs that they always entail leave me no free time. In the Atlantic, I had time to read. Now I have no free time whatsoever. In fact, my leisure time has been reduced to the few moments that I can snatch for a cup of hot coffee or tea. It is a kind of animal life in which, at odd times of the day and night, I simply crumple into a corner and sleep like a rock, usually still wearing my boots and oilskins. It goes on in an unbroken cycle, steer, steer, sleep, steer, sleep, and so on. I'm going to have to do something about it and make up my mind to read a chapter a day, or even a few pages, just to regain my equilibrium. My time is devoured by the endless stress of repairs that I must make every day. Sun squalls mean that I have to haul down the sails like a madman, and this in turn means that the sails are torn and battens are broken, which will take me hours to sew and repair. These strong winds are making kindling of the battens, 
The slides, which hold a sail to the mast and allow it to be raised and lowered, have suffered enormous damage and some of their parts are jammed in the aluminum of the mast. Then, of course, there are the broken halyards. When they break, they make tiny metal splinters which, no matter how careful I am, end up sticking in my hands and making cuts that take a long time to heal. In spite of everything, we keep moving along across the Indian Ocean. Every problem brings us closer to Sydney, the end of the first leg of the journey, in itself a pilgrimage worthy of the name. Saturday, November 10th. I woke suddenly, feeling something change in the rhythm of Manoreva, to find the sails are back. It was the beginning of a day during which the boat was difficult to handle, having a tendency to jibe constantly. I have now all the instructions passed on to me by RTL concerning my unruly Decker automatic pilot. I hauled down all sails, and taking advantage of a sunny day, set to work, removing and changing the cap, tightening screws and bolts and so forth. The work took most of the morning. I used a line to tie myself to the stern and was in water up to my waist. To waterproof my oilskins I used tape to seal them to my boots, and I was able to putter around with the decker without getting soaked. I also dissembled, cleaned and greased the roller of the mainsail before hoisting it. Finally, I went below to change and had a cup of tea to warm me up. During the past week, my ninth at sea, I've covered 1,510 nautical miles. My general average has increased now and is 179.2 miles per day for an average speed of about 7.5 knots. The albatrosses that have been escorting me now land on the boat and come to within a few yards of me. They've become very much at ease in my presence. When I finished all the repairs on the boat, I fixed myself a small meal by way of self-repair. I was just having my dessert when there was an enormous uproar from the cockpit. I rushed out to find a mollymawk at the helm. I surmised that the mollymawk, a kind of albatross, had crashed into the mizzenmast or into a halyard and then plunged into the cockpit. It seemed to have become entangled in the steering mechanism and was unable to free itself. It was a fairly large bird. Its wingspan was at least 10 feet and I knew that its beak was a dangerous weapon and one that it knew how to use. I had heard stories about these birds from Cape Horn sailors at San Malo. I didn't care to come too close and yet I didn't dare leave the bird there for very long. Then, by some miracle, the mollymawk succeeded in freeing itself without any help from me, jumped up on the side of the cockpit, climbed onto the rear deck and from there launched itself into the air. According to my calculations, in the past two weeks I've covered 3,000 miles. That is, my average of 220 to 230 nautical miles per day. That is a definitive break through the famous wall of 200 miles per day solo average, the wall that Chichester tried to cross in 1968 in his last gypsy moth. It was left to Manoreva to succeed and to succeed in the Roaring Forties. That fact makes up for a lot of the problems and unpleasantness of the past couple of weeks. I'm still about 2,500 nautical miles off Sydney, although thanks to the radio telephone, I have already spoken with Australia by way of Perth. Perth was the first Australian city I saw in 1966 when I emigrated aboard a French freighter to try my luck down under. Perth was our first port of call and it is therefore my first memory of Australia. I would like it to be the first place to hear me announce my arrival. So much for symbolism. It's hard to believe that so many years have passed since then, years in which much water has passed under the keel, so to speak, and years during which the extraordinary world of the sea has opened up to me. Sunday, November 11th. 
a bad day at sea with a series of jibes and damage to sails following a violent squall. Between squalls, I sat in the cockpit and read, only raising my eyes occasionally to watch the ballet of the albatrosses as they hover at the surface of the water and then rise after snacking on the algae there. It is, after all, Sunday, a day of rest, and, moreover, a day for celebrating victories. Monday, November 12th. The weather last night was very strange. Squall followed squall till dawn, a very dubious dawn in which dirty yellows contrasted sadly with pinks and blacks. The entire morning was spent steering. We greeted the arrival of violent gusts of wind up to 50 knots by jibing. There was no indication on the barometer of anything unusual. Before lunch, a spell of comparative calm gave me time to run up the mainsail, although it took me a good half hour because the slides are sticking so badly. I've worked hard enough to deserve a meal, and I'm pleased to be able to eat it in peace. After doing a take for RTL, I reached my family in France. One by one, they took turns talking to me. Mama was pleased when I told her that I'd just finished eating the pigeon or champignons that she had made for me. I talked to Jeff about the technical problems, of course, and added more items to the list of things I need. He assured me that what I had asked for previously was ready, and that they had gone over the problem of the slides very carefully. He is certain that I must expect some breakage, no matter what kind I use. Our connection was remarkably clear, and I felt as though I was sitting in the room with my whole family, so much so that I was reluctant to end the conversation. We talked for 20 minutes. Tuesday, November 13th. I've broken my own solo record, the 10,000-mile trek from Reunion to France in 66 days. Today is my 67th day at sea, and on this voyage, I've already covered 11,000 miles. I'm still at 43 degrees south and 102 degrees 10 minutes east. The sky is grey once more, and a fine rain is falling. It's time for caution. I took in a reef and then another one in the mainsail. Even so, I know that it is foolhardy for me to continue with so much sail. After a three-hour struggle with myself, I decided to haul down the mainsail. After a one-hour struggle with the winch, I got it down, and I was just in time. A series of strong gusts came along to justify my intuition. If I may use an expression inappropriate to the walls of water around me, I was playing with fire by hesitating so long. It was a very dark night. Manareva, under her single jib, moved bravely along at her customary ten knots. In these fearsome waves, it requires at least partial insanity to have even the jib's 236 square feet aloft. But waves or not, and insane or not, it was a good night. Wednesday, November 14th. Fog, spray and drizzle, as always in these miserable latitudes. I spent the day working on the mainsail and the mizzen, and I was ready to drop from exhaustion. At about 1900 hours, just as I was preparing a hot cup of tea, I heard a siren. Rushing out on deck, I saw aft to starboard Australian Endeavour, a container cargo coming alongside. After many hand signals and the customary exchange of flags, I rushed to the radio for a contact on frequency 2182, the distress frequency. The ship had put out of Liverpool three weeks before, en route to Melbourne. The captain offered to pass on any messages that I might have and he also gave me my position as 43 degrees 3 minutes south, 109 degrees 19 minutes east. We were 550 miles south-southwest of Cape Lewin and 150 miles from its longitude, which coincided within 15 miles with my own calculations. I'm rather proud of having come so close. This encounter, 
the first that I have had for so long, especially coming as it did after all those terrible and exhausting days and nights, was an extraordinary tonic for me. It made me feel that I was reborn into a world inhabited by warm, friendly creatures whose membership in the human race I shared. There are moments when my need for solidarity, the group instinct, the need to belong, becomes so intense that it feels as though I were melted into the species. I don't believe that a hermit flees the human race. I know from my own experience as a hermit of the sea that one is never so close to humanity as when one is alone. The men who had just spoken to me of the joys of living on terra firma were soon lost in the fog and the darkness. They took with them unwittingly my escort of mollymawks and albatrosses that had been following me since the Cape of Good Hope. The birds obviously preferred the ship to my little boat. Of my winged friends, only one albatross remains with me, an old and slightly decrepit bird whose feathers seem to come unglued with every gust of wind, revealing his whitish down. There are also a couple of blackbirds that look remarkably like crows. Thursday, November 15th. I'm beginning a new logbook, one with a red cover, to record my 69th day at sea. I've now crossed the longitude of Cape Lewin, the southern cape which follows Good Hope on the around-the-world route of the tall ships. We have left the Indian Ocean and are in the southern ocean of the Australians. I've set a course for Bass Strait, which separates the island of Tasmania from the Australian mainland. From there, it will be 500 miles to Sydney. At this point, I must say that Manareva is truly an extraordinary boat, a performance boat designed for speed and specially fitted for very difficult conditions. The records set, the speeds reached, all these things are, after all, to be expected of Manareva given the way she was built and the years of careful preparation and planning that went into her. One thing worries me, how am I to know whether I've used Manareva to her maximum potential? Have I made the best possible use of her in difficult waters? In other words, have I met my personal goals? The past three days saw me hit rock bottom. I felt that I was alone and lost at the farthest reaches of the world, in a nightmare of fog, almost permanent drizzle, violent squalls, an enormous swell and incredible winds. I have to keep telling myself that I'm here because I want to be, that nothing forces me to be here, that I can always escape simply by setting a course northward. After all, I remind myself I'm not going to spend my life here, I'm only passing through. What about all the sailors in the last century who did spend their lives in these waters, under these skies, that remained grey for months on end? They must have belonged to another race of men, a stouter race, to endure it. The fog today is a bit less dense than yesterday, but navigation remains difficult and the sea is still rough. I may be getting used to it. In any event, things are going more smoothly since I've accepted the fact that I must reduce sails sooner rather than later. It does not pay to rub the ocean the wrong way. A sudden barometric drop made me haul down the mizzen in a hurry. Later, I took a wave broadside, a lesson that is much better to let the waves carry us. Friday, November 16th. The fog and drizzle are not heavy enough this morning to conceal the solid walls of water moving crossways around Manareva, and we will content ourselves with being carried. Toward noon, the sun was out briefly, touching the enormous swells with eerie light. There must have been a gigantic storm somewhere at this latitude, and giving me a heaven-sent opportunity to whip out my sextant. My position? 41 degrees 27 minutes south, 117 degrees 20 minutes east. I ran up the mizzen and let out the reefs in the mainsail before hoisting the genoa. 
I then opened the hatch to air out the cabin. Finally, I bailed out the bottom, about five quarts of water. Then I settled down to wait for evening, at peace for once. The sky at sunset was an inverted bowl of pink, purple and yellow. I could not resist filming it to have a record of it for my friends. The wind fell to zero. I hauled down the jib and was in bed by twenty hundred hours. The alarm clock was set for midnight. Saturday, November 17th. The night, for once, was longer than I had planned. I did not hear the alarm and slept through without waking until 0600 hours. I scrambled on deck to get underway before hoisting the reaching jib and then busied myself with various little repair jobs, more out of the need to placate a guilty conscience than for any other reason. I spent most of the afternoon trying to get the decker pilot working again. There was a breeze, but it was too weak for the Gianoli pilot and its antenna was not sensitive enough to be activated. The boat luffed, then jibed, but I don't think that I have any right to complain. I've had sunlight since yesterday, and to me, that is worth all the wind in the world. The week's tally shows that I've travelled 1,491 miles. The total mileage thus far is 12,289 miles. Daily average, 182.5 miles. Average speed, 7.6 knots. That is really moving. I had a very good radio contact with RTL yesterday. Today, an equally good session with my family. They are getting ready for their flight to Sydney. I was able to tell them about the week and about my experiences in the Roaring Forties. For the past week, I've been maintaining Manoreva's course at the same latitude despite the temptation to head northward. The reason is that the further south we sail, the shorter the distance, since the diameter of the Earth is smaller the nearer we approach the pole. There have been a few nice days without the furious Niagaras that I encountered when first entering the Indian Ocean. Those days have been useful in restoring both the boat and the skipper to working condition. I've gotten into the habit of reefing as soon as the wind rises. I reduce my sail, yet I know for a fact that I'm going to have a certain amount of damage no matter how careful I am. I simply accept the inevitability of having to make repairs as soon as the wind drops again. Undoubtedly, Manoreva will begin to show a few weak points now. After all, she is over 11,000 miles under her keel. I no longer try to keep up as much sail as possible, as long as possible. I have developed a more gentle philosophy. I keep my hand in by trying to maintain a more or less constant speed to keep up my average. I've gone back over the 2,000 miles that I've just crossed. On the chart, drawn as a straight line, it indeed turns out to be 2,000 miles. But in reality, drawn from one meridian point to the next, the distance is much longer because sometimes I headed south and sometimes north in order to get away from the Antarctic ice. So much for the 200 mile per day record that Sir Francis Chichester tried to break in 1969 with the specially built Gypsy Moth 5. Sir Francis's purpose was to cover 4,000 nautical miles in 20 days by taking advantage of the trade winds between Africa and Central America. He was unable to do so, despite favourable weather and excellent equipment. Now, if we measure a straight line from the Cape of Good Hope to Cape Lewin, we find that it is 4,300 nautical miles, which I've covered in less than 22 days. And if we measure from meridian point to meridian point, we find that I've actually covered 4,500 miles in that time. My pleasure in breaking that record is enhanced by recalling the words of Sir Francis himself after his failure to do so in 1969. In my opinion, he said, when the record is finally broken, it will be broken by a multi-hulled boat. My interior barometer is now in harmony with actual meteorological conditions. I think that I will be in Sydney in about 10 days, though I would not try to fix an exact date at this point. 
weather conditions along the coast are more variable than in the open sea, where weather systems can develop without interference. I've been at sea for over two months, and I have been able to get down to essentials. I realise that, for me, family ties are the most important thing in the world, and I am eager to see my family once more, and to see Tiura, who is also going to meet me in Australia. Whenever the weather permits, I do not hesitate to run up as much sail as possible, as much for the sake of speed as for the sake of seeing my loved ones as soon as I can. It's not only a question of breaking or setting records. It is just important for me to know, as I've already said, that I've lived up to the goals I set for myself, that I've fought as good a fight as I could in the circumstances, to satisfy myself on that point. I asked to be radioed information on the positions of the racing boats that have left the Cape of Good Hope for Sydney. Once I have that information, I'll be able to calculate their averages and compare them to my own. I'm eager to see how they are affected by the wind and the sea in the Indian Ocean. In these contrary swells, those giant waves, the fog and the rain and the squalls, I suspect that a conventional sailing vessel with a crew will have an easier time of it than a solo sailor. Even so, it will certainly not be easy for them, and I am eager to see how their speed compares with mine. Sunday, November 18th. Really beautiful weather, and I am greeting it by spreading all my damp clothing in the cockpit to dry. I've been in radio contact with Dennis Wolanski in Sydney. We've known each other for years, and it is good, after a long absence, to relax in the warmth of a friend's voice again. The sea is calm, and I am resting and relaxing today. I've lashed the tiller and settled down to read. It's Sunday, and I like days of rest now and then. The end of the day was made perfect by the appearance after dark of a spectacularly illuminated cargo ship like a fairy castle drifting silently in the night. Monday, November 19th, Tuesday, November 20th, Wednesday, November 21st. For the past three days, it has been relatively calm, and I have had the usual small navigation problems, accompanied, of course, by the usual repair chores. I did have a red-letter day. I managed to contact Tura in Tahiti via Sydney Radio. It is fortunate that the weather has been fairly good because I have not been feeling very well since Monday. I seem to be progressively more exhausted and my reflexes have begun to slow down. I've tried doses of vitamins thus far with no discernible effect. On Tuesday afternoon, in fact, I had to lie down. That night, I forced myself to eat, although I had no appetite. Wednesday morning, I woke at 0300. My joints were sore and I was as weak as a limp rag. I felt as though I had just finished a particularly gruelling rugby match. It was not until Wednesday night, when I was awakened by the alarm, that I finally discovered the reason for these strange bouts of intense weakness and dehabilitation. I was being slowly asphyxiated by carbon monoxide fumes, the same stupid accidental asphyxiation that you read about when a family is found dead in their apartment because their stove or furnace is not properly vented. The alarm is what saved me. I had enclosed myself completely in the cabin because there were squalls and a rough sea, and I was trying to spare myself any unpleasant surprises during the few hours of precious sleep that I allowed myself. It took an enormous effort for me to drag myself to the cockpit and open the hatch. The fumes from the generator accumulated in the cabin through a series of coincidences and malfunctions, a breakdown in the cooling circuit, and if I had not awakened when I did, I feel certain that I would not have been alive the next morning. I had absolutely no idea that anything was wrong, and I was already so weak that I don't think it would have taken much more to finish me off. I could hardly walk. There was a loud ringing in my ears and I was suffering from an intense nausea which left me totally exhausted. For the next 36 hours, I was in misery. 
I could barely move, and every movement of my arms or legs required an extraordinary effort of will. To make an adjustment in the sail meant that I had to sit down to rest every few minutes, and it seemed that every manoeuvre took an eternity to accomplish. In short, my record-breaking almost turned into the incomplete crossing. During those three days, the rhythm of the boat was entirely disrupted, and I lost about 36 hours of sailing time. Thursday, November 22nd. I'm still not feeling well, and the barometer is falling rapidly. I've hoisted the running jib, and even that small chore has left me totally exhausted. We jibed several times. Once more, several slides on the mainsail broke, and I hauled down the sail to make repairs. It seemed the hardest job that I've ever had to do. During the afternoon, I fell into bed and slept for three hours. Friday, November 23rd. It seems that it is becoming harder and harder for me to move around and I'm weak as a baby. It goes without saying that I'm extremely eager to get ashore. I haven't seen land since we passed the Canaries 12,000 miles ago. I'm trying to get to the various little repair jobs that are necessary for me to be able to manoeuvre well when I do land. I'm surprised. I'm not a little worried that I haven't seen any ships since sighting Australian Endeavour. My position, 38 degrees 55 minutes south, 141 degrees 43 minutes east, is now about 30 nautical miles from Cape Nelson and 90 miles from Cape Otway. The depth finder showed the bottom at 700 feet at 1300 hours. At 1500 hours, it was 505 feet. At 1600 hours, 370 feet. Finally, at 1655, I shouted for joy, 135 feet, and then I wept, partly from excitement, partly from exhaustion, and partly from anticipation. At 2100 hours, we rounded Cape Otway, and I was finally able to make out, far off to port, the lights of several freighters. I have four days left to reach Sydney within the time I've allotted myself, and to equal the average time of the clipper ships. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.